Hi, this is Yuval Gontrowski, CEO at Akuda, and you're listening to Experiencing Data with Brian T. O'Neill. You're now Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. Experiencing Data explores how product managers, analytics leaders, data scientists, and executives are looking at design and user experience as a way to make their custom enterprise data products and analytics applications more useful, usable, and valuable. And now, here's your host, the founder and principal of Designing for Analytics, Brian O'Neill. Welcome back to Experiencing Data. This is Brian T. O'Neill. Today I have Yuval Goncharovsky, the CEO of Akuda. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? Thanks, Brian. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah. So you're dialing in from Israel right now, but Akuda is also based in, in the East Coast in Cambridge, probably down the street from me somewhere. Tell my listeners a little bit about Akuda and also what a socially capable nerd is. I love that in your uh, LinkedIn. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, well, we'll start with Akuda. So Akuda is, is what we call the world's first operational intelligence platform. What we basically try to do is, you know, when, when we think about the future of work, we always see the need to give everyone more access to the company, to the data the company holds and, and what we're actually doing, why we're doing what we're doing, how much time we're dedicating to our biggest challenges. These are things that managers think about, things that individual contributors, developers think about. And so what we try to do is is provide this glue that used to exist in water cooler chats and informal connections and adapt that sort of to the new reality of of either being fully remote hybrid or just big company that's outgrown garage mode. So capable nerd. I mean, I, I so both my parents are AI professors. I grew up writing code before I learned how to ride the bicycle, and I'm still not a very good bicycle rider. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> having spent six years in the Israeli military and a couple years in management consulting, I'm still deep down inside a true data science nerd, but someone just referred to me one day as the socially capable nerd in it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I get it. You, you, there are some other of these that get called soft skills. I don't think that's the right label for them, but just I'll use it because I think the audience knows what I'm talking about here. You worked at Apple for a while. You had a stint at the Media Lab. I saw, you know, obviously you have to have some pretty serious technical chops for all that kind of work. Did the product role and running the business, is that something you just found very natural and you evolved into that? Or did you have to consciously learn some different skills and maybe turn off some of the technical skills sometimes and turn on some other ones? Tell me a little bit about, and I assume you're sort of running product as well as running the business at this stage of where you guys are at. We do have a phenomenal head of product. Her name is Ronnie, but she also comes from that path of, of being a former developer and, and transitioning into the product role. What you just said really resonated with me about sort of turning off some skills. I think that is the, the number one thing that I found I was doing more and, and even kind of surprised me is when I have a discussion with my CTO, my first inclination would be to ask, you know, to try to talk about the how, but that's not necessarily my job anymore. We want to talk about the why and how does the customer perceive things? How do they look at things? How would they experience this new feature? And in a sense, I think that's my, my biggest internal, I don't know if struggle, but my biggest change in, in the way I see the world is as I just have to shut this part of my brain that constantly reminds me how I can solve these challenges. And, and first and foremost, ask myself, why is this a challenge that is worth solving? And I want to give the audience a little bit more information about what Akuda is. I'm always trying to think in terms of use cases and problem spaces, right? And the one I got from this was 
does someone in my company that maybe I don't even know them have a skill set or some information about something that I might need? And your tool going out and monitoring and scraping data from all these different sources is able to see like, oh, so-and-so knows a lot about, we joked about like building a churn models, like, oh, good. We don't need to start from scratch. Someone else is doing one of those. So it's for finding that skill set and also for management to know, oh, we're spending a lot of time on this kind of thing. And there's three people doing that. And, and I thought only one person was. So maybe we don't need three teams working on that. Am I correct so far in some of these use cases? I talked to a lot of managers, managers being from like project managers, product managers, all the way to company managers. In my mind, a manager is anyone who needs a horizontal perspective of the organization. And when I talk to a manager, I ask them, what do you need to do your job well? No matter how I phrase that question and attack it from different directions, the answer is always going to be somewhere around data, the, the right data, more data, more visibility. Take any CEO, say, what do you need to do your job better? Any project manager, I want to know what's the status of this, right? It, it all revolves around data. When you ask an individual contributor, what does your manager need to do to get their job done? It's also going to be data, but it's going to be attacked from a different perspective, right? And then this is where the whole like concept of I, nobody wants a micromanager comes in. So how do I give or surround myself with the right data, myself and my peers, my managers, my colleagues, with the right amount of data so they can call the shots or make the right decisions, but in a way that makes us all move in, in harmony? The way Akuda approaches this problem is, is very much data-driven and data-centric. Uh, let's take a, you know this uh, this conversation for example. Say, say we're doing this this interview on Zoom, right? So we're in a Zoom call of, of Brian and Yuval talking about Akuda or talking about experiencing data. It doesn't really matter if we have this conversation on Zoom or on Slack or in a Google Drive document that's called Akuda that we both edit and annotate together, right? Customer support ticket or anything in the digital footprint. It's a conversation between two people talking about Akuda, and, and we dedicate a certain level of effort to it and, and time and significance. And what our engine does is we take the entire digital footprint that the company produces, of course, public digital footprint. We break it down and then we build it back up in a way that makes us, enables us to ask the right kind of questions. So now we can ask, how much time are we spending discussing Akuda? Right? Who knows the most about Akuda in the organization? I can find the document, but I can also say Brian does because he spent a lot of time on it. And so once we have that kind of mapping the organization of the information that flows around us, we can help provide this additional layer of insights that benefits both managers and individual contributors to align themselves and the organization a lot better. If you're selling this into a bank or a large enterprise organization, there's so many people there and the use cases of like, I'm a developer on one team building a feature, an API for this product team who is part of the digital team, who's part of the whatever team. We're talking hundreds, thousands of people here. The use case of that individual developer doing something versus the VP of marketing or something at the level that they're looking at, maybe ma managing hundreds or even thousands of people, those use cases have to be fairly different. Is it meant to support all these different management tiers as well? And if so, how do you keep it simple enough that it's not kind of a B minus experience for everyone because it's trying to satisfy everyone's needs? That's one of the design challenges, like, well, who's it for, right? And when it's for multiple people with multiple different use cases, that's what's really hard to design for. So how do you approach doing that? So we spoke about sort of this data tree that we build or, or this fundamentals of taking the digital footprint and dissecting it into these units of work. A manager doesn't necessarily, or like a high a senior executive 
What they want to know is the train is moving the right way. So their kind of questions are going to be, for example, how much time are we spending with, I don't know, the long tail customers compared to the bigger enterprise tickets? Or, you know, if I have a customer that's only paying me, I don't know, $10,000 a year, which is a relatively small amount, but 80% of my R&D team's time is going on developing features that only that one customer uses. Those are kind of the questions or the queries that these executives are going to have. But the, the data, and this, this again goes back to me being the, the nerd part of the socially capable nerd. The, the databases behind that are the same, right? Which is understanding the digital footprint and making sense of it. The individual contributor is going to say, I'm now working on self-serve login or API access. I want to see all relevant information around that. I want to see, one, where the documentation is. Maybe I want to avoid these tail documents that we all know exist but are no longer relevant for anything. But I also want to maybe have a set of eyes on the sales calls that mentioned this because I'm a developer. I don't want to work in my own silo. I want to see how sales teams are bringing that up in, in their calls. I want to see how the marketing folks are going to treat it. And all of a sudden, we get this magic of I now have the visibility into the things that I'm doing down the line or up the line for me. And you know, our customers, they love it because it creates this, this sense of bond because it is harder for me to go into the water cooler and talk to the marketing folks and, oh, we're working on the same thing. That's pretty cool. Right? But once we have that visibility through the NLP engine and, and the AI that combines these two sources into one unit of work around self-serve logging or whatever it is, that's where magic starts to happen. How do you test that the use case is designed for, say, you know, someone at the C-level person that's looking at, am I giving enough love or the amount, right amount of love to customers based on the revenue that maybe is coming or something like that versus lower level manager or something like that? How do you design the product around these different use cases for these different people? The name of the game here is dog fooding, right? We are our own biggest customer. If I spend too much time on spending the feature that spends too much time, there's a lot of meta in our discussions when we take a look at our own product on our own company, right? When I demo Akuda, I show people Akuda on Akuda. Uh, we are a very data-driven organization. Part of it is our, our DNA, my own background. When you first start a company and you know, you're, you're into your first handful of customers, a lot of decisions have to be made based on gut feelings, sort of hypotheses, scenarios. Uh, I've lived through this pain. I've been in very large organizations for most of my career, you know, Apple, Intel, McKinsey, others. I kind of know this mentality, but you know, the more customers you bring up and ramp up and have them on board, a data-driven design, I think, is, is one of the key most important things for a feature like this. I want to see that my biggest customers are using the features that I thought I would be building for them, and they're also allocating the right amount of resources to ask these questions. If they're not doing that, and, and we have had cases where you know I thought I was building this killer feature that everyone's going to start using, but they just haven't logged into it. So U-turn, flip change direction, change resources, and build something else. I do think this is the only advantage startups have over large companies. It's speed, right? Acknowledging that we, we maybe made a mistake or developed a little feature widget that's not being used by customers, scrape it back to the drawing board, build something else our customers are going to love. Sometimes lack of use can be a variety of reasons, like I can't find it, or it's not labeled properly, or I thought that was for somebody else. There's a lot of reasons where maybe the underlying idea is actually pretty sound, but the execution is off versus this is just a solution in search of a problem. It's a chart in search of a problem. Do you do any type of one-on-one -on -one research with customers to get stuff in front of them before it's fully built, or do you tend to ship and then see what sticks and then pull stuff out? Really strong opinions that I have here that, that may be a little bit contrarian to what they, what they teach in product schools. So I'm, I'm happy to get the pushback. I, I don't know if it's the best or not. But for one, I never do unpaid pilots. 
I charged for the customer when it was me showing like this quick and dirty me running through the data and showing you a visualization on Zoom. And I charge now when it's a sales reply that you jump into. I don't believe I will get honest feedback from a customer that I don't hurt their pocket. That's thing number one we've done since the moment the company was founded, even before we got VC money. And I will do that for as long as we can, I think. You know, uh, if you want honest feedback, you got to charge. And so that's that's one thing we've been doing. But we do sometimes give a little bit of a discount for a biweekly meeting and that is product related. And I think that's one thing that product people sometimes don't judge probably is you, you have the customer success meetings. The purpose of those are making the customer the happiest they can be. But you also want designated product discovery settings, meetings where the customer knows now, now they're here to help you. And one of the things we started doing, and this is a tip I got for one of my mentors, is whenever one of our customers were really instrumental in helping us design and develop a feature, we actually named that feature after the customer. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, so, so, so we have like the Stevie feature or the D feature or like customers that really help us design the platform in the best way possible. And then they feel part of it too. And then all of a sudden you have, you have your real champions inside the product. Do you prototype things first, either in static mockups or some kind of low fidelity before you commit engineering to it? Or do you kind of jump right in and wire it up fairly substantially with data behind it? Or talk to me a little bit about how far do you go before you're ready to commit putting something in? There is, of course, I think one right answer here, and that's that engineering is the most expensive resource we have. Whenever we allocate engineering resources, they have to be something the customer is going to use. What we do here at Akuda is, is we have what we call our front-running team led by Amitai. He's, he's a phenomenal data scientist. And sometimes what he will do is he'll work through the databases or more the, the back-end layer and create these dashboards that are not fully in the product yet, show it to a subset of the, our customers and say, what do you think? Maybe you can play around with it a little bit. And then when we see growing engagement, we sort of go back to the drawing board and build this for scale. And we call this our front-running team. I assume like if you're building a feature out, the assumption is, well, here's this problem that this thing is supposed to solve. Do you run them through some kind of task or like a job to be done that they have to try to use your tool for? Or is it more open qualitative feedback? Do you like it? That kind of thing. How do you approach that? I'll share an example. Uh, we all know how different, I guess, the second half of 2022 was from the first half of 2022 in, in how we run companies and allocate resources, you know, transitioning from growth to profitability. About seven or eight months ago, one of our customers reached out and said, I had a company walkout. It's an entire team, basically. I know Akuda can help me. I'm just not sure how. I know you, you have digital footprint analysis. You, you can help me recover, maybe understand if there are any open points of work or like, I, I know you can. I'm not sure how. I'm, I'm lost here. I have to go scramble and find open projects and talk to the team and do all these things that I can. And then what we did was, was we tried to do some of these product discovery sessions and said, let's think together about how we can, you know, attack this use case. And, and we came up with what we call offboarding report, which is understanding, say, if there's any open meetings that are now don't have an owner or customers who no longer have a rep that is actively working on or some alerts or th things like that, you know, because you lose people, you also lose some information and, and, and documentation. And then, you know, you, you roll something out. You say, like, here's a couple of queries I ran on my database. Is, th is this something that's helping you solve your problem? And they say, you know, I like this part. This part is kind of useless. We go back, we you know, do another iteration, and then we have these amazing customers who are going to give us that feedback until we nail down how we see these things happening. And then we take it to production, right? We, we say like, now you can just click and see everything you need around a specific 
event or a customer. And now anyone can do that using the product. And it's one of our most beloved features. The offboarding. Yeah, offboarding or just like show me on a project level, on a timeline, how much progress we're making or if there are any sort of things that we don't see a clear owner attached to in the digital footprint. I know as a designer, one thing I've learned over the years is that the person that's being sold to the customer is not always the user of these tools. And there can be a disconnect between the value conversation that you're having with the buyer versus everyone else that's going to be, quote, stuck with it. If Hopefully they're not stuck, right? If it's doing its job, they're actually like, I love this. I couldn't work without it. Do you ever see a gap there between the person buying it, what people are actually trying to do in the field? So one, I think, you know, measuring expansion metrics inside of an organization is one of the most important things you, we can and should do. We have these internal metrics of, you know, a certain number of weeks in, we want to see 5x, 10x growth in the number of users internal to the organization. And I want to have a few champions. And one of the reasons why Akuda is, is very good on these metrics is because we pay close attention to it. I do think if we want to sell B2B SaaS today, we always have at minimum two champions which is your buyer and the CFO. The CFO is never going to approve a line item unless they can actually see a benefit for themselves in the tour. And so basically, if we want to create a good sales cycle, we have to sell the product to our buyer, our user, the champion, and then we have to sell it to the CFO. And then sometimes you also have to sell it to the head of IT because they're the ones who are going to install it. And, and it can be misleading, right? Because you essentially have a sales cycle after you've sold the product. But if you don't build the right collateral and the right approach and mindset to the fact that it's not enough when the contract is signed, it's actually these three sales cycles of making sure that the customer adoption is done properly, then you haven't finished selling. Contract is step one. Installation is step two. Usage is step three. Until step three is done, you haven't really sold the product. Do you ever see a disconnect, though, between once you get into the usage, what teams are doing or what they want versus the thing that the customer that wrote the check was looking for? I would imagine the higher levels, they're really probably thinking more about, am I, am I spending the right amount of time on the right things? At the individual contributor level, there's probably less concern about that, right? It's my job, my thing, my project I'm working on. I don't think for us it's a necessarily a problem because our, our buyer is go top down. We start with operations leaders, VP ops, COO, and, and these are the kind of challenges they face every day. Where's my company going? Am I allocating the right resources? Is that project going to be on time? Where can I find the information? Uh, today, I think that the most commonly used phrase by an ops person is what's going on with X. But there's always the surprise and delight element, you know, when, when someone finds out that you have this amazing insights tool inside your organization and you haven't heard of it and then you just enjoy using it. Yes, we provide value to a lot of folks that aren't necessarily our first touch points. I kind of have this theory that no, no, nobody really wants machine learning analytics, that they don't really want insights, right? Usually it's, I have an itch that I need to scratch. I have a sense that maybe we're not using our time well. Like, and, and I'm making this up in your, I'm thinking about your scenarios. Ultimately, they're trying to decide, can I rest easy that everything's on track or do I need to change something? So the question is, when you think about this, are you designing for just that decision support, which is the action that would follow? Or do you tend to think more about we're just providing the facts and whether you're going to make a decision on it is something totally else or designing for the decision part of the way you position the product? They're a little bit different. One's about putting the evidence in front of people. The other one's about, do I need to change something? Did you know you have 15 people building churn models in different departments? Is that correct? Oh, yes, it is. Okay, then we'll just not talk to you about that. That's fine. Or, wow, that's, no, I didn't know that. And that's abnormality. That sounds like I should take care of that. That sounds like waste. 
Let me share uh, two stories and an analogy to answer your question, right? So, so the first story is June, June 2020, right? So this is, uh, you know, the company started yet, but it was just me. We haven't fundraised yet. So I was just writing code and showing it to early customers that paid me like $200 a month. And I spoke with one of one of our design partners, early customers, and we showed, we recognized using digital footprint analysis that there's a silo of about four to five people in the organization that they're not as connected to the rest of the organization as everyone else is. The COO tells me, Yuval, this is amazing. Do you know why? Because all of those people started after COVID, right? June 2020, all those people were hired right after we just went fully remote, no longer in the office. Something in their onboarding wasn't right or we're not seeing them as cohesive because, you know, we lost the in-office charm. And, you know, I love Akuda because you just told me, you just gave me an action item, right? I need to go talk to these people and help bring them inside the organization. I, I know what I need to do. Great, awesome aha moment for me in my very early days trying to start a company. A couple of weeks later, I talked to another one of our customers, a COO, and we see another silo in the corner. I thought I was being smart, asking her, what did all those people start after COVID? And she tells me, no, Yuval, that's my PhD research team. They're working on projects the company's working on five years from now. I'm actually extremely happy that they're siloed because I don't want them to get sucked into the day-to-day of the roadmap. They're my finest engineers, but everyone else can handle these routine events that are happening. I want them solving my most difficult algorithmic problems. I love the platform that you're building, but I love it because here now you're showing me that I'm doing the right thing because we had a problem with those people getting too much into the day-to-day and now they're being siloed. And so those are the two stories that the analogy is from one of our advisors who, who gave me the, the Tinder analogy. I lost the world of online dating because I got married very early. <laughs> but in, in Tinder, if someone doesn't get a lot of matches, they get the following notification. You haven't changed your profile picture in a long time. Tinder can't tell you, hey, man, you're not too good looking. You might want to change your picture. <laughs> it can't tell you that, right? So it's going to give you a data point. And that data point is you haven't changed your profile picture in a long time. It's non-disputed. It's a data point. Tinder is limited in what I can tell you. It's, it's, a, it's an app. You are you, right? What we want to do when we talk about organization, operation, intelligence, and insights is I'm never going to tell someone these employees are siloed because they shouldn't be. I'm not here to replace your job as a manager to say, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? True insights come from the fact of also Akuda recognizing its spot as an operational intelligence. So we are, we are the glasses, we're not the eyes. And so there's a certain level of insights that this information provides you. We're not talking about a, a blank dashboard and analytics that you ask, well, why is this showing up here? But I also, I'm not going to tell someone, here's an employee who's about to leave because who am I to tell you that an employee is behaving the way they are because they're going to quit? That's wrong and very presumptuous of me. Do you tend to think about it as... In both cases, there was a small group of employees that was distinct from the others. And it was a group, or maybe they didn't even know each other, but they all shared some common characteristics, right? In one case, they were isolated. In the other one, they were isolated on purpose. Is even pulling out the fact that you have some isolated people, though, a signal that you would push to customers, which is, hey, we're detecting you have some siloed people. It at least identifies that there's something anomalous about this collection of people over here. And that suggests that you guys have thought through the use cases, which are silos can mean something really important. So the product should do that work as opposed to simply relying on eyeball analysis. Is that the tool's job versus the user's job to go dig through it, right? Because one of them is about eyeball analysis and humans doing all that digging versus the tool is looking for these patterns and pushing them to the surface. 
I don't think there's one clear uh, approach here, right? It's just like any any managerial challenge, right? Uh, even my day-to-day as a CEO, some of these things that I approach proactively and saying, all right, here's this project I now need to look into or a question and hypothesis that I have. But then I also want to get these push notifications if things aren't working. If, if the product is down, I need my team to tell me. I don't need to search for if the product is down every day. But if I want to go give us this directive like we should focus on these five key customers and make sure we don't drop these contracts or we don't drop these efforts the push versus pull model and akuda does both right you can log in hand out these queries say show me the organization chart the comm chart i want to see if i can find any silos etc but you can also say i want to make sure that the time i spend on building new features is always 30 or 40 or 50% of the time level of effort of my organization. Uh, and that sort of relays this information back to you in, in a pull mechanism if it is or is not the case. It's a case-by-case thing of when is it research mode of me logging in and trying to optimize my organization versus when am I already expecting the platform to highlight things that aren't functioning properly for me. There was this old joke when I worked at Lycos 20 years ago. Once a product manager gets something on the, the homepage, you can't get it off. Once it's there, people fall in love with their widget or their feature or whatever. Any big lessons you've learned about either we had to remove something, even though we were convinced that this would be so awesome. What was the process and when did you learn that it's time to pull the plug or it needs to be redesigned? Is it tough to swallow that pill when the team feels like it could be so great, but you're not getting good feedback on the usability or the utility of that? That is a great question, Ryan. Thank you. Um, I, <laughs> I'm very public about my values and principles and, and leadership philosophy that I have. It's, it's the pin to a post on my Twitter, my, my internal set of values that I go with on every employee. And one of those values I call truth. And it starts with a quote by Ray Dalio saying that truth or more precisely an accurate understanding of reality is the essential foundation of any good outcome. And it means that we have to value the truth even when it's unpleasant. Avoiding internal biases or the sunk cost fantasy of, look, we spent six months on it, so we have to put it in the front page. I think it's the number one thing we have to let go of. We're going to try to minimize those mistakes, like we said earlier, front runners. We want to make sure that everything our engineers do is going to be there and create these aha moments for our customers. It's never going to be at 100%. We're going to scrape features. It's going to happen and we have to be okay with that. We want to do it in a pleasant way and, and make sure that we keep the motivation high. If I did something that's not giving me the right results I wanted it to, then we have to acknowledge that. Sometimes less is more, aka Google front page versus Yahoo front page. The pushback I hear is the antidote is data literacy. So the issue is my stakeholders or my users aren't data literate enough to know how to use the solutions that I'm giving to them. What's your position on that, having two parents with AI professors, and how much is it the customer's, quote, fault or their need to come up to speed to understand this stuff versus, no, the product's not simple enough, we need to make it easier or whatever? I think the product is never simple enough, (laughs) right? Think about the iPhone. So much to just make it one button and then even remove that one button. By definition, all products are too complex, and it's always tempting to add another button, another feature, another toggle. Let's see what we can remove to make it easier. How many people actually use the like trend screen on Twitter other than make a joke out of it? There's so many things that like Google Drive has so many features hidden under their settings that no one's ever used, but we like it because it looks like the Windows folder and we can click on these documents and have a search function capability. Everything else can be hidden under like menu option number five or six. And I think it's the same thing for all insights, analytics, tools, whatnot. 
providing simplicity and, and starting, you know, in the jobs to be done framework. Explained very well by the late Clay Christensen, who's an incredible human being, is what is the job to be done? And how do I answer that job to be done with my platform? It doesn't have to be through 20 different configuration settings and, and 50 buttons. It can be just one really good one. You mentioned a really good thing. We've talked about it on this show, and this is subtractive design, right? It's where can I remove to simplify? We tend to think about, I need this to stand out. Well, let's make it bold. Well, we could just reduce boldness everywhere else and let that thing stand alone. And so that's usually my recommendation when clients are coming to me with complicated dashboards. It's like, well, what's not really necessary here? How can I reduce some of the ink that's here to let the most important things stand out? That tool, the knife, the scalpel, it gets lost a lot of the time. We're tending to think about what do we need to add you know, to make things easier. <laughs> I, I want to say it was Mark Twain. Maybe it wasn't Mark Twain who said, you know, I didn't have time to write a, a short letter, so I wrote a long one instead. <laughs> totally. The short ones are the tough ones. To get a lot of signal packed into a short amount, you know, that's, it's tough. <laughs> I can totally relate. If you could start over right now with the CUDA, with the product or the product strategy or any of that, is there something you'd change? Anything you've learned in the couple of years you guys have been rocking and rolling? I think my biggest mistake is that it took me a year to hire the first head of product other than myself. In retrospective, I would have done that earlier. My head of product, we work together at another company, so we're very much aligned in, in our world philosophies, but two is better than one. And it's always good to get that, that product pushback. So I think that's one thing I would have done differently. And the second thing is, you know, anytime you invent a category, you're bound to, you know, walk into a few different doors and, and then, you know, do the U-turn, walk into the, to another door. It's like writing code. You know, you have bugs, you fix them. In retrospective, I would have written that clean code directly from day one, but it's sometimes the process is inevitable. One of the things I'm most thankful for is our early design partners and believers that are very much the third product arm other than myself and our head of product. They've been giving us this extremely important feedback to build the things that they love. You maybe remind me of a question I wanted to ask you, which was, is there something different about hiring ahead of what I'd call a data product, right? You, I would think of you guys broadly as in the data product kind of category. Is that different or mostly the same as someone running products somewhere else? Extremely hard hire. It can go wrong more than it can go right. I, I think I've been blessed to have a, had a product that I've worked with before in the past. Maybe my advice to all people is never be the first head of product at a startup reporting directly to the CEO. And, and I, I, I kind of want to say that, right? Like it's, <laughs> it, it's, it's a very, very hard position to be in unless you are extremely well aligned. Because the founders usually come in with a vision that is theirs from day zero, hard to convince, hard to change. It's a very hard position to be in, but you know, it's, it's on both sides. It's on the founders and CEOs to sort of let go and say, we now have someone who's dedicating their entire day-to-day -day capacity to how we improve product UX, UI, functionality. So maybe my word isn't, shouldn't be the final word anymore. And then it's up to the head of product to navigate through new territory and, and understanding what matters, what are the foundations that we've built and, and raised this product on that, that aren't going to change. Is there something specific about the nature of it? There's you know, data science, machine learning, analytics involved. This is an insights and intelligence product. Besides knowing something about analytics or knowing some SQL or knowing something about data, is there something particular that makes it that someone's going to be a good data product manager? Is there a signal that you were looking for? I mean, obviously you had previous work experience, but I'm, I'm curious what that delta is between a quote plane or a regular product manager and this data product manager that stands out or key skills that you're looking for there. 
think user first always for not thinking user first. There are enough people, you know, that the hands-on developers, the coders, in some sense that the product arm is part of the engineering organization. And what they have to do is constantly take it back to the user. What does the user want? What's the user looking for? How are they going to use the platform? What are they going to be thinking? You know, what's going to hurt them? What's going to make them smile? Put yourself in the user's shoes constantly, no matter your background. If you come from the same background as your target audience, it's good, but it's also risky. Deep Blue, the, the chess platform that won over Kasparov three decades ago, they tried to hire people that don't know how to play chess as developers because they didn't want them to be biased in their own way, prior ways of knowing how chess works. And so sometimes uh, ignorance is actually better. If, if you hire someone with a fresh perspective set of eyes, they're going to be a lot more rigorous. Yuval, this has been great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Where can people learn more? By the way, I'll just say Akuda. It's A-K-O-O-D-A dot C-O. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, cool. And where can they find you? I have a very long and unfriendly name, so took it down to the single letter. Why? I answer all emails. So. Subtractive design again, right? There you go. So yeah, if you missed that, his email is Y, letter Y, at Akuda.co. So it doesn't get more easier than that. And you, I'm sure people can find you on LinkedIn. Or are you active on Twitter or some other place more than that? Or is LinkedIn the best place to, to find you? LinkedIn's probably the best place. Yeah, I, I tweet in four languages, but English is only one of them. So, oh, okay. <laughs> excellent, excellent. Well, I'll put a link to the LinkedIn profile and to uh, akuda.co uh, in the show notes. Yuval, thanks for coming on the show and, and sharing your product journey with us. Well, thanks for having me, Ryan. It's been a blast. Uh, I love listening to Experiencing Data. Thank you so much for having me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Experiencing Data with Brian O'Neill. If you did enjoy it, please consider sharing it with the hashtag Experiencing Data. To get future podcast updates or to subscribe to Brian's mailing list, where he shares his insights on designing valuable enterprise data products and applications, visit designingforanalytics.com slash podcast.